The House will return today and stay in session through Thursday. The Senate will return in two weeks on Monday, January 23rd. Last week in the House, I am so tempted to say last week the House met and elected its Speaker for the 118th Congress and just leave it at that. It took 15 ballots and three and a half days. It was not pretty, but in the end, Congressman Kevin McCarthy was elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. We'll talk more about that in a moment. This week in the House, they're scheduled to return today with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up an as yet unnumbered resolution adopting the rules of the 118th Congress. Then the House will take up H.R. 23, the Family and Small Business Taxpayer Protection Act, which will rescind the unobligated funds that were dedicated to the hiring of 87,000 new IRS employees. On Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, the House will take up H.R.E.S. 11, establishing the Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. H.R.E.S. 12, establishing a Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government as a Select Investigative Subcommittee of the Committee on the Judiciary. H.R. 22, Protecting America's Strategic Petroleum Reserve from China Act. H.R. 27, the Prosecutors Need to Prosecute Act. H. Conres 4, expressing support for the nation's law enforcement agencies and condemning any efforts to defund or dismantle law enforcement agencies. H.R. 26, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And H. Conres 3, expressing the sense of Congress condemning the recent attacks on pro-life facilities, groups, and churches. Last week in the Senate, on Tuesday, the Senate convened for the purpose of swearing in seven new members and 27 returning senators. The new senators include Katie Britt, Republican from Alabama, Ted Budd, Republican from North Carolina, John Fetterman, Democrat from Pennsylvania, Mark Wayne Mullen, Republican from Oklahoma, Eric Schmidt, Republican from Missouri, J.D. Vance, Republican from Ohio, and Peter Welch, Democrat from Vermont. Majority Leader Schumer marked the occasion by noting that he had just become the first senator in the history of the state of New York to be elected to the Senate five times, and then he talked more about himself. Minority Leader McConnell marked the occasion by noting that he had just set a record himself by becoming the longest-serving party leader in the history of the Senate, and then he talked about the party leader whose record he had broken, Mike Mansfield, who served as majority leader of the Senate from 1961 to 1977. This week in the Senate, nothing going on. As I said, they won't return for another two weeks. Now let's talk about illegal immigration. Yesterday, President Biden made his first visit to the southern border since becoming president. He spent a little more than three hours in El Paso, Texas, one of the centers of the two-year-old surge in illegal immigration. When he disembarked his plane, he was met by Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who personally delivered a letter that said, quote, your visit to our southern border with Mexico today is $20 billion too little and two years too late. The letter went on to declare that Biden's, quote, visit avoids the sites where mass illegal immigration occurs, and then said El Paso, quote, has been sanitized of the migrant camps which had overrun downtown El Paso because your administration wants to shield you from the chaos that Texans experience on a daily basis, unquote. El Paso is an instructive example. As of the most recent data, the city has an official population of about 678,000 people. On top of that, between August 22 and December 7, I'm sorry, December 11 of last year, 
the city added another 84,000 illegal immigrants. That is, in less than four months late last year, this one city added illegal immigrants equal to about 12% of its population. Sadly, the American public has no idea of the depths of the problem at the border. In December, the Harvard-Harris poll surveyed 1,851 registered voters and asked them, among other things, a simple question, quote, how many border crossings by illegal immigrants do you think are occurring each year, end quote. 16% said fewer than 100,000. 21% said between 100,000 and 250,000. 18% said between 250,000 and 500,000. 20% said 500,000 to 1 million. And 12% said 1 to 2 million. Add it up and that's 87% who think the number of illegal border crossers is far, far lower than it actually is. Back to El Paso. Of course, President Biden didn't see any of the 84,000 illegal aliens who arrived in El Paso between August and December yesterday because local authorities had spent the last several days cleaning up in anticipation of his visit, as documented by the Daily Mail. No longer visible were the tens of thousands of illegal immigrants who slept on the streets in freezing cold weather as recently as December. Instead, what greeted Biden were clean streets with no trace of the migrant population that had been living there as recently as last Wednesday when the cleanup began. Biden was there to pretend he cares about illegal immigration. Last Thursday, he announced what he called a new immigration policy, which would create a, quote, safe, orderly, and humane processing of migrants trying to enter the United States. As he has before in other situations, he was announcing a policy to be implemented by the executive branch, overlooking the fact that neither the Constitution nor the Congress has authorized the executive branch to do such things on its own. The new policy is a subterfuge. It is designed to make it appear as if Biden is cracking down on illegal immigration when, in fact, he is not. Here's the way it works. The Biden administration is telling people who want to come to the United States that all they need to do is let us know ahead of time that they want to come to the United States. To do this, they can use an app or they can use various hubs in Mexico and elsewhere. Once they've let the U.S. government know they plan on coming via the app, the U.S. government will grant them parole before they even arrive. Then when they get there, they won't when they get here, they won't be, quote, without legal authorization. The parole granted by the Biden administration will be treated as if it were a visa, except, of course, it's not a visa. So what's the difference between the old policy and the new? Simple. Reporting. Under the old policy, migrants arrive at the border, are encountered, that's the fancy word for arrest, and are then released into the country to await their court proceedings. They are reported as illegal alien encounters, and the relevant government agencies keep a running total, which allows us to know that in fiscal year 2022, 2,378,944 were apprehended trying to cross the border illegally and then released into the interior. And another roughly 600,000 were known gotaways, meaning a total of almost 3 million came into our country illegally that we know of. That is the answer to the survey question from earlier. Remember, 87% believed the top number was one to two million. 87% have no idea that more than, I'm sorry, that almost three million people illegally entered our country last year.
But under the new policy, they will apply for parole before they even get here via their phone. So when they arrive on the border, they will already have been paroled. It's right there on the app. And that means there will be no need to count these people in government statistics as illegal aliens who were apprehended trying to cross the border without authorization and then be released into the interior of the country because they will already have received their authorization by the time they arrive at the border. This, needless to say, is against the law. Congress has granted the executive branch authority to parole individual migrants on a case-by-case basis, but not whole classes of migrants. The Biden administration is failing to enforce the law. And in this case, with this new policy, not only is it failing to enforce the law, it is breaking the law itself in wholly new ways. It is ignoring and overriding laws that were duly enacted by Congress, and it is taking unto itself authority that neither the Constitution nor the Congress have given it. Stay tuned on this. I imagine the new Republican majority in the House of Representatives is going to have something to say about this. Meanwhile, today, in a federal district court in Pensacola, Florida, a trial has begun under the watchful eye of federal district judge T. Kent Wetherell. The state of Florida is suing the United States government over Florida's contention that the federal government is failing to enforce the nation's immigration laws. In May of last year, Judge Wetherell issued a 37-page ruling rejecting the Biden administration's argument that the case should be thrown out of court, blasting the Biden administration's position, writing that the administration's arguments, quote, weren't persuasive and, quote, defy logic. He said they are, quote, not immune from judicial review. Quote, this position, he wrote, is as remarkable as it is wrong because it is well established that no one, not even the president, is above the law. And the court unquestionably has the authority to say what the law is and to invalidate action of the executive branch that contravenes the law and or the constitution. Thus, if Florida's allegations that defendants are essentially flaunting, he meant to say flouting, the immigration laws are proven to be true, the court most certainly can and will do something about it, end quote. We will keep an eye on that case as it progresses. Now, back to the election for Speaker. The final vote tally was 216 votes for Kevin McCarthy, 212 votes for Democrat Hakeem Jeffries, and six votes of present. As we were all reminded many times last week, a vote of present is not counted in the overall vote totals, and so lowers the threshold needed to reach a majority of the votes cast. In the final vote, for instance, there were 434 members elect in the chamber. 428 of them cast a vote for a person, while six of them voted present. Because those six votes were not counted, as if those members had literally been absent for the vote, the total number of votes cast was 428, a majority of which was half plus one, meaning 215. On the final ballot, McCarthy received 216 votes, one more than was needed. And, by the way, the exact same number of votes for Speaker that had been received by Nancy Pelosi when she was elected Speaker in 2019. But McCarthy did not receive those votes just because he was the choice of the overwhelming majority of House Republicans. He started the week with 203 votes on the first ballot on Tuesday, and it took him the better part of four days of negotiating with a group of 20 House Republican members-elect who would not vote for him without certain assurances. The combination of desired procedural changes to the rules of the House, 
desired personnel changes to certain committees, and promises to hold votes on certain items of interest. He flipped 20 votes in one day. On the 12th ballot, Dan Bishop of North Carolina, Josh Bershin of Oklahoma, Michael Cloud of Texas, Andrew Clyde of Georgia, Byron Donalds of Florida, Paul Gosar of Arizona, Mary Miller of Illinois, Anna Paulina Luna of Florida, Ralph Norman of South Carolina, Andy Ogles of Tennessee, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Chip Roy of Texas, Keith Self of Texas, and Victoria Sparts of Indiana flipped their votes to McCarthy for speaker. On the 13th ballot, Andy Harris of Maryland, who is reported to be likely to get the Agriculture Subcommittee Chairmanship of the Appropriations Committee, flipped his vote to McCarthy. On the 14th ballot, Lauren Boebert of Colorado and Matt Gates of Florida flipped their votes to present. And on the 15th ballot, Andy Biggs of Arizona, Eli Crane of Arizona, Bob Good of Virginia, and Matt Rosendale of Montana all flipped their votes to present, joining Bobert and Gates. That was enough to bring the threshold down to 215, and McCarthy was elected speaker. Now, what did the opposition earn in exchange for its votes? The following list is long, but not necessarily complete. The motion to vacate the chair has been restored to its previous one-member threshold. A tax increase will require a three-fifths majority to pass the House. The Holman Rule has been restored, about which we'll discuss more in a moment. There will be no more pursuit of unionizing House employees. There will be a new power for all members to challenge amendments that aren't relevant. On calendar Wednesday, any committee chairman can bring a bill to the floor. There will be much more transparency. There will be an opportunity to offer amendments from the floor during consideration of spending bills, something that hasn't happened for at least six years. There will be a 72-hour minimum to read legislation before it is brought to the floor for a vote. Proxy voting is eliminated. Committees will control legislation. There will be a vote on a constitutional, member to, uh, constitutional amendment to limit the terms of members of Congress. There will be a vote on a constitutional amendment to balance the federal budget. There will be a vote on a budget resolution that will balance in 10 years and cap discretionary spending levels at FY 2022 levels, which could mean a 10% cut to defense spending. There will be three new conservatives added to the House Rules Committee, meaning they will control a third of the Republican seats on that very powerful committee. The Holman Rule requires that no funds may be appropriated for programs that have not been authorized. Further, it allows members to offer amendments during the consideration of appropriations bills that can target individual personnel. The changes can include reductions to staffing numbers at federal agencies and can even include reductions to the salaries of individual federal employees, say, for instance, the head of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases. I'm sorry, that's the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. In addition, committees will be required to create and implement a plan to provide proper oversight of all federal agencies and programs within their committee's jurisdiction. And there will be a new subcommittee on the weaponization of the U.S. government to investigate the way the Department of Justice, the FBI, and other agencies of the federal government have been turned against the American people. Its supporters keep referring to it as a church committee, referencing the mid-1970s Senate committee that investigated and revealed CIA secrets and operations, doing significant damage to U.S. national security interests. 
The decision to allow three conservatives onto the Rules Committee is huge. Since the 1960s, this committee has been known as the Speaker's Committee. It's how the Speaker controls the floor, because no bill goes to the floor without first going through and getting the approval of the Rules Committee. The Rules Committee has the power to amend legislation that's already been considered and finalized by the various authorizing and appropriating committees of the House. No matter what the balance of party, uh, the balance of power between the two parties, the Rules Committee is always stacked for the majority with nine members from the majority party and four members from the minority. That is, the majority gets twice as many votes as the minority, plus one for good measure. Now, allowing three conservative members to sit on the Rules Committee means that the conservatives have the power to tank any rule if all three of them band together and join with the Democrats to fight the Republican leadership. If they did so, they would create a seven to six majority in opposition and they would defeat any proposed rule. This is enormous influence. That's our Washington Report for this week.